I got to tell you one thing, though. Young people in high school say, wow, I read your book, Freakonomics, and now I want to study economics. And I always hold my breath a little bit, and I cringe because what we write about in Freakonomics and what one studies, especially if you go to do PhD-level economics, have very little in common. And I always worry that we're misleading people, taking them down a path which is really pretty painful. Welcome to How To. I'm Carvel Wallace. Have you ever found yourself stuck in a job? It's like you work so hard, you take so much time to build a career and get to the place that you were dreaming about, and then when you're there, you suddenly notice that it feels stale and pointless. And then the panic sets in. It's like I've made a huge mistake. I've devoted years, maybe even a decade, to something that I don't even like. So what now? Well, this week's listener found himself in exactly that kind of predicament. My name is Abdullah from the United Arab Emirates. I'm an engineer with an electronics engineering degree. I've been working as an engineer for more than 10 years now. The The challenge that I'm facing now is I feel that uh, I have reached kind of a plateau in my career and um, I feel myself less intellectually challenged every single day. Abdullah is in his mid-30s and he's recognized that there is a ceiling on how far he can go in engineering, both intellectually and career-wise. Yeah, so how it works is that uh, once you start on a path as a technical person, the opportunities are limited to being a technical person. I know I'm not going to be the VP of the company one day. I know that. I'm very clear on that. So yeah, so I know I'm not going to be the CEO or the general manager. There are caps on how far I can go, and I feel I have done well enough to reach where I am against all odds. I have done fairly well mm-hmm. any, uh, for, for everything. However, uh, there's always a time to, to jump and to move to the next path. Abdullah has a wife and a son, so he can't just up and quit his job. But he also wants to explore this new field that he's kind of obsessed with now, economics. I saw the potential of economics as a problem-solving tool. I'm from Pakistan originally. So in Pakistan, you have only two options. You either become a doctor or an engineer. But Mm -hmm. as you grow up, as you get uh, to know more about things, I was able to realize how diverse of a field it is, especially with the development of human uh, behavioral economics. I feel this is something that my country needs badly. This is something Mm. that all developing countries need badly. This is the, let's say, the charitable thing part of the problem. But then the selfish part of the problem is uh, any... This is something that intellectually uh, appeals to me. If it were not economics, it might have been something else. But I I feel this is the thing that uh, would take me to that journey. What are some of your biggest fears about making this change? Are they financial? Is there a fear that you will regret it, Like that you Mm -hmm. won't be happy? Like What keeps you from just today running off and doing it? You don't even need to be on the call with this. You're you're off and you're in school. What what stops you from doing that? The dilemma and the problem that I have right now is, uh, as I told you, I'm in a very good, stable, mid-management position right now. I, I make decent money. I, have, I live with my family. We are quite stable mm. financially. And uh, in terms of our overall life, we are pretty good. The challenge and the problem is, where I am right now in UAE, I don't have any options to go to do a part-time uh, master's anywhere in economics. Mm. So, so the problem for me is to leave all of this, 
to leave the job mm. to leave the family for a couple of years maybe uh, the uncertainty of it what if it doesn't work out mm. Th- there are no guarantees in life of course but uh, uh, all of this is bearing on my mind so abdullah wants to leave behind something that pays well but is unsatisfying in order to pursue something that might pay well and might satisfy him more but nothing is certain it's a quandary many of us face so what do you do? Well, fortunately, we have the perfect expert to help us figure out this vexing but fairly common problem. And he knows a little something about economics, too. My name is Stephen Levitt, and I am a professor of economics at the University of Chicago. I'm also an author. I co-wrote the book Freakonomics with Stephen Dubner and a couple other books. And I host a podcast called People I Mostly Admire. Stephen Levitt is someone who found his way by taking chances and thinking outside the box. He's made a name for himself through the incredibly popular book series and podcasts, Freakonomics. And he's inspired a lot of people, including Abdullah, to think about economics as not only something boring and dry, but actually something kind of interesting and sexy. But as we'll hear, there is a big difference between listening to an economics podcast and being an economist in the real world. But it is possible. So on today's show, we're going to hear how Stephen took a surprising path to end up where he is now. And he'll tell us how a simple coin flip might be the best way to make a risky decision about your career. Stay tuned. When economist Stephen Levitt was in his late teens, he used a very specific, and you might even say Levitt-esque method to choose his career path. Well, let me say, I was the worst kind of student in college. I didn't care about anything (laughs) intellectually. All I cared about was getting good grades. So (laughs) I I had a strategy, and that was I would take the biggest, easiest classes, and that was my guideline for which classes I took. I took the easy classes so it could get good grades. And I took the big ones because I figured probably the big ones must be good. A lot of people wouldn't take a class unless it was good. <laughs> the biggest, mm-hmm. easiest class at Harvard was Act 10, the beginning economics course. I had zero interest in economics. And as I sat in the lectures, I was bored out of my mind because everything was completely and totally obvious to me. I had never heard anything so obvious. I already knew everything they were teaching me. And I had a moment of epiphany when my best friend who was also in that class, walked out of the lecture that had just bored me to death and said, my God, that was the most confusing material I've ever seen. I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't understand that. None of it makes any sense. I suddenly realized that I actually just think like an economist, and I hadn't realized that before. (laughs) And so I went into economics for a really bad reason, which was it was just easy for me. And and I never thought I'd be an academic. I I went and worked in management consulting for a couple years, and I turned out I hated it. In much of the way that Abdullah is describing his problem, I found it really boring and it was anti-intellectual. And I decided I should Mm -hmm. go back and get a PhD in economics. And so I went back and honestly, I I understood nothing about what I was doing. It was, I was completely uninformed. The most important thing to succeed in economics is to be good at math and have learned a ton of math. And I had avoided math like the plague. I was, I was bad at math in high school. I got a two on the calculus AP exam. Nobody gets a two on the calculus (laughs) AP exam. And because I thought my career in economics would be so short, I thought I was going to be PhD and out because I I couldn't compete with these 
other folks, I just did my own thing, the things that interested me. And, and much to my and honestly everyone else's amazement, people liked what I was doing. And, and I was able to carve mm. out this odd career in economics of, of being around the edges. And, and that's how I got into economics and, and how I survived in economics. Stephen's path to success through the labyrinth of academia is truly remarkable. But if you don't happen to write a best-selling book and have a series of wildly successful podcasts, how does someone in economics actually make money? I don't know much about UAE and how the economic market works there, but let me talk about the, the market for economics and economics degrees sure. in the USA. It has a real downside from Abdullah's perspective, which is that you would think that economics would be really useful to business, to finance. But yes. I was consulting at one point with a large bank in the UK, one of the biggest banks. It must have had 10,000 employees, I'm guessing. And I was sitting down with the CEO and he said, before we get started, wait one minute, I just want to have our economist come and sit with us. I said, economist? You have 10,000 employees and you have one economist? And he <laughs> said, yeah. And you would think that a bank of all enterprises <laughs> would be loaded with economists. What's really awful, as I look back now in economics, and what I, I really despise about it, is that the gatekeeping that goes into who's allowed to be an economist is extreme. So, mm. so mm -hmm. essentially the only way to become a professor at a prestigious school is to get a PhD from an equally prestigious school. And so it's, it's a terrible profession in that you can't just be interested and have talent and then go prove to people that you're good at it. You have to have checked off all these boxes along the way that are really just gatekeeping. And, and I think that's, that's very problematic for somebody like Abdullah, who mid-career wants to go try his hand and, 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 and see if he's good at it. Hmm. Wow. Abdullah, how are you? I mean, I, I, <laughs> I want to ask for your reaction, but I'm also aware that <laughs> you've just been handed a bunch of interesting news that maybe you weren't prepared for. So maybe you don't quite know yeah. what you think yet, but what is your first reaction upon hearing this? Uh, my first reaction is, uh, see, I, I take the positives from what Stephen has said. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> I, 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 see, I see I've been uh, dealt a bad hand uh, by my mind and my, my thought process. That's mm. okay. It's perfectly fine. That's how things work out. But what I've noticed, what Stephen said, one very good uh, phrase that he said is the economics thinking. The, the, the way you think as an economist or how you uh, incorporate that kind of thinking into your daily life, into your professional life, and how you become uh, or how you make yourself an asset to, to an organization by being that kind of a person. So, for example, uh, I get your point that uh, going into economics, doing a master's and a PhD kind of limits uh, your potential to being only an academic. Uh, the good thing is, and UAE is a very, very diverse market. It, it's in the middle of the Middle East. All the regional headquarters, all the tech companies, all the investment firms, everyone sits here, right, besides where I am right now. The plus point or the upside of uh, being in such a diverse market is people here are quite open to outside-the-box thinking. 
when I started listening to uh, Freakonomics, when I purchased the books, when I read Freakonomics, and at that time I wasn't thinking about a PhD. At that time I was thinking how to align myself mentally to this mode of thinking, to bring this thought process to wherever I am. I love your positive outlook, and I, I mean I, I mean that sincerely because I think that oftentimes the things in order for us to do things that we really believe in, we have to have a certain amount of almost unreasonable optimism. That has been mm -hmm. my experience in my career, and I everyone else I know who's had some success at what they do has some element of just like core belief that no, I think I'm just going to keep doing this, and it's just going to be what it is. The people who I have known who've succeeded in economics have succeeded because they loved it, because they didn't think about it as a mm -hmm. job, because they love the ideas, they love the pursuit. So so mm -hmm. in that regard, I, I'm 100% behind you. The other thing that I believe deeply in is quitting. I don't think people quit nearly enough. <laughs> and, and if you are on the mm -hmm. fence for quitting, then everything I've seen in my own research where I did some randomized experiments in, in the real world around quitting is that the people who quit are happier than the people who don't quit. They're glad they quit. Almost no one regrets quitting. Okay, so here's our first insight. Loving what you do is helpful, maybe even essential to success. If you are considering a mid-career switch and wondering if it's gonna work out, you should ask yourself, do you really love the work? Because while being passionate about something doesn't guarantee success, it's pretty hard to put in all the time and labor necessary if you don't truly and deeply care about it. So I, I, as I think about what you say, so look, I agree that the core ideas of economics are the most powerful thing I've ever come across, that, that they guide everything I do. They are a framework for life, which is awesome. And having those tools and being able to use them effectively will, will do good things for you. A question mm -hmm. is, are there other ways to take economics and those ideas and to prosper? So let me throw out one. Yeah. So I despise business school. <laughs> I, I, I hate the MBA. I think in general it is a terrible program, at least in the U.S., that teaches people all the wrong things. It teaches people how to pretend they know what they're talking about when they don't know what they're talking about. Okay, that having been said, I do think that you can – Many MBA programs, you can heavily load up on economics. You can mm -hmm. either in the classroom or on your own. I mean, let me just emphasize the set of materials that are out on the internet, that are in, in MOOCs, in classes. You can learn all the ideas of economics without getting any kind of degree. Mm -hmm. But for what you want to do, I could imagine that doing a heavily economic MBA combined with an engineering background, that, that could be a magical combination because now you have the credentials to be a manager. You have the ability mm -hmm. to talk to the technical people, which most managers don't have, and mostly on your own because of your intellectual excitement around economics and your, your passion for it. You learn economics in a way that almost no MBA does. Yeah, Stephen, so I'd like to jump in here and uh, just concur with you on a couple of points. Yeah, I hate MBAs, same I'm with you on that. <laughs> Honestly, this came to my mind as well at the very same moment that a very economics-loaded MBA 
could be kind of like my foot through the crack in the door. As much as I despise MBAs, but uh, yeah, that that looks like a very, very good option to me. I honestly never thought about it before you just started saying the last comment. Yeah. So yeah, I really appreciate that one. If I were to start over, if I were young today, I wouldn't be an economist. I would be some kind of data scientist because actually what I did in my career was I love data. Uh, I love data and I looked at it through an economic lens. So I don't know if you're interested in the data side of it, but that is another viable path besides the MBA where you could on your own without having to quit your job, just do it as a hobby, right? You can, you can learn data science as a, an avocation. And because mm -hmm. credentials aren't that important, you can just say, even at your own existing company, if they'll let you get some hands mm -hmm. on the data and you analyze it in a way that shows them there's value, my hunch is the managers will say, hey, hey, here's another data set. Come analyze that one too. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I, that's a low cost way. I'm always in favor of low cost ways of trying things. I think that's a low cost way to start on this path. It's a lower cost way for sure yeah. than Econ PhD, but also a much lower cost way than the MBA that we talked about. Yeah, yeah, and that makes more sense as well for me uh, as an engineering uh, background. So, yeah, but it does make a lot more sense, yeah. So here's our second insight. If you're thinking about making a life-changing decision, explore the low-cost ways of feeling it out first. For example, if you're contemplating going back to school, maybe try some online classes first. Read some books in the subject, like dip your toe in the pool before committing a large chunk of money. When we come back, making a big decision is hard, but what if you just flipped a coin? Stick around. We're back with our listener, Abdullah, and Freakonomics co-author, Stephen Levitt. What's interesting to me about this like conversation is that there's... Um, you know, there's there's a question of strategy, right? And uh, how is it that we like put ourselves in positions to do something different without necessarily swallowing the whole? But it also makes me think about risk in general, like how we make decisions about taking risk. And I guess I'm wondering, backing up a little bit from the specifics of this career change from from engineering to economics, what advice do you generally have for people who are considering taking a similar kind of risk in their lives? You know, all the advice we get is like, take the leap, just go, just be free. Life is short, blah, 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 seize the day. Or we might get advice that's just sort of broad. Don't give up what you have. Don't let go of what you've achieved. Don't take too much risk. But is there some other way to think about should you make the leap or not? So my own research would say that you should make changes. I was always frustrated because economics is this discipline that's supposed to be about decision-making. But when people would come to me and say, should I make this choice or another? I never had anything interesting or useful to say. So I went on and did a study where I, I actually <laughs> set up a webpage where we would invite people to come who were having trouble making decisions in their lives. And what we did was we kind of faked around and pretended in a Freakonomics way, like we would help them learn how to make the right decision. But ultimately, all I really wanted them to do was to get to the end and say, I'm still not sure whether I want to quit my job or get divorced or, or drop out of school, whatever the choice was. And I said, well, hey, why don't we help you? We'll tell you what to do. And we would <laughs> flip a coin. We would say, okay, so we're going to flip a coin. And if it comes up heads, you should quit. 
and it comes up to Alice, you should not quit. And incredibly, we did convince about 25,000 people to flip this coin. And incredibly, about two-thirds of the people followed the coin toss and actually did what we said they should do. And that's where I have this data-driven idea that people don't quit enough because across almost every decision, six months later, the people who got heads, and it was randomized, uh, were, were happier than the people who got tails. And the only real difference between the people who got heads and tails was that six months later, a lot more of them had, had quit the thing that we had asked them to quit than the people who got tails. So in that sense, I think mm. making a change is good. I always encourage people to make a change. Now, there are smart ways and there are dumb ways to make changes, right? So sometimes you're going to think you want to do something and you're going to realize that it wasn't exactly what you hoped. And so <laughs> I'm very much in favor of finding ways where you can quit, but go back again if it doesn't work well, right? So for instance, you could quit your job in a way that you never be invited back, or you could say, hey, I want to improve my skills, and maybe I could take a six-month sabbatical, and I'm going to go and learn a bunch of stuff, which would be great for the company. And then you never have to go back if you don't want to, but you have the option. So I, I like optionality. I I'm a big believer uh -huh. in maintaining options. And so dabbling at nighttime for a while until you're sure it's really the right thing finding ways to get paid by your employer to go do the things that you want to do anyway. <laughs> so that, that is my advice, is make the change, but, but be strategic in the way you do it so that you maintain the greatest optionality. Abdullah, what's your reaction to this? This is great. I'm, I'm, I'm fired up. I think I might go do this at my job. <laughs> uh, I, I was taking notes when Stephen was talking, and I've already uh, jotted down... Uh, in addition to what Stephen has said, I have thought of a couple of other things to add to this list. And honestly, I'm on Monday, uh, I'm going to my manager directly and I'm going to start talking to him and see how I can start at least to get some kind of data sets from them and uh, start at least working on it as a practice tool. I'm sure they'll be helpful and uh, they'll, they'll figure out something to help me out in this. I'm just uh, sweating with excitement right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love this idea that most people probably should do the risky thing and should quit the thing that they're not happy doing in favor of the thing that they want to do. Tell me a little bit about, have you seen that work in other situations? Well, on my podcast, I, I talked to really interesting people. And what I've been surprised by is their paths are almost never linear. That, especially with young people today, if you have teenagers, which I do, you see how precision, laser-focused the system is today, where, where these kids think they can't step off for a second because life is short, and if they make one misstep, they'll, they'll never get back on track. I mean, even in my own life, I went and worked in consulting, so I was two years behind in my PhD program, the people who went directly from school, and I felt like, my God, I'm never going to catch up. I wasted these two years. So idiotic, so short-sighted. Right. Now, I want to be careful, though, because so every single amazing guest that I have in my podcast can tell you an anecdote about how they were doing something and they quit, and the thing they're doing now is amazing. But you have to be really careful because there's what we call the survivor bias. And so I wouldn't have them on my <laughs> show unless they were doing something amazing. And there might be 
A hundred people, a thousand yeah. people. Right, you don't have the people in your show for whom <laughs> exactly. it didn't work out. Uh, They're not, uh, right. And so there might be a it's thousand. The same, it's the same Harvard. It's the same Harvard dropout uh, theory of uh, of the Bill Gates and the Zuckerbergs, basically. Exactly. Of every dropout billionaire, there's That's a million right. who didn't make yeah. it. Right. The reason I think quitting is good is because society has put so much pressure on people not to quit, right? So the, everyone's mantra mm. is, oh, you know, winners never quit and quitters never win, things like that. So we have brainwashed people into thinking that, that <laughs> quitting is awful. And that's why I think people don't quit enough. I certainly don't want to be part and parcel of doing the opposite, which is creating this right. mythology. You don't think everyone yeah, everyone all the yeah, times, 24-7, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> In some sense, you're talking about swinging the pendulum back to something where quitting is seen as a reasonable, viable path forward. Not necessarily um, everyone needs to quit at all times, and that's my whole brand is you need to quit, you need yeah. to quit. But but I tell you, I try to talk almost everybody out of getting more education because the people who come to me and say, well, i graduating from school, from uh, undergrad, and I don't know what to do, so I think I want to go to law school. <laughs> I try really hard to get those people not to go to law school. I think getting more <laughs> education by default it's almost always a terrible idea. You can always go and try mm. other things. And mm. like happened to me, I realized, wow, I, I, I don't want to be a consultant. I want to get more education because I want to do something different. And for me, those two years off were incredibly valuable because I went back excited and passionate in the, in the same way Abdul mm. is excited and passionate. Mm. And that served me so well in school. When I hear people talk with passion about anything, no matter how outrageous it is, I say go do it because I, <laughs> I, I think there's just no substitute for that. And especially it's good if you're passionate about something that almost no one else is passionate about. Hardly anybody's passionate about economics. And so if you are, <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's just to me, you should be trying to do it. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we're always re-examining the art of decision-making and the, and the craft of decision-making. And there's so much content about that. But the old pros, cons list remains one of the core <laughs> like methodologies we use. S Stephen, do you still believe in the pros, cons list? And if so, what kind of pros and cons do you see at least possible for Abdullah? Here's my own personal rule. When I'm making a hard decision, which is I don't, I think about pros and cons, but when things are close, when I'm not sure, when I'm uncertain, I actually revert to a different idea. In my own life, one of the most powerful emotions I feel is regret. Somehow for me, regret is sticky. Mm. I, I can regret things for years and other emotions, happiness, sadness, they fade relatively quickly, but regret I find is sticky. So when I'm facing a tough choice, one thing I try to do is I think through the worst outcome. So I have two choices. If I do A, what's the worst outcome? How bad could something be and how deeply will I regret it 10 years from now if this goes completely awry? And compare that to that yeah. worst case scenario for B. And I tend to opt for the scenario in which I won't have so many regrets. Like maybe I'm being too personal. Let me tell you a story that's probably way too personal. But I was contemplating getting divorced about 10 years ago. And mm -hmm. And I really, you know, I didn't know if it was the right thing to do or not. Those are hard, hard, confusing decisions with not a lot of information about what whether you're doing the right thing. Somehow I felt like if I got divorced, I knew it could turn out really, really badly. But I could say to myself, honestly, I won't 
have that many regrets. I know ahead of time this is risky. I know ahead of time this might be a complete disaster, but I'm willing to accept that even if that happens, I knew it was a chance and I'm going to be able to accept it. Whereas I thought about not getting divorced and I felt like, God, I might just 10, 20 years from now look back so deeply regretful of it. And, and so I chose to get divorced. And and since I got divorced, well, things haven't been the greatest and mostly they've been good, but, they haven't. <laughs> but at those moments where they haven't been the greatest, I've reflected and said, look, I knew that it might not be that great. I knew getting divorced was going to be full of hard stuff. And I promised myself that I wouldn't have regrets over it. And I accept that that's the right thing. And and so I haven't regretted it. And so I've viewed it as the right decision. That, that, anyway, that's my own. I don't know if it's good advice or not, but it is what I do in my everyday life. Mm. Yeah, that's a sound advice. And thanks for sharing your personal experience. You know, I recently bought um, a little poster called 4,000 Weeks, which is like based on the idea that you live like in the average in the U.S., the average lifespan is like 4,000 weeks. And so there's like a little dot for each week. And when you order the poster, um, they you tell them your birthday and then they give you the poster mailed to you with the number of weeks you've already lived filled in, right? And then each week that passes, you fill out one more dot. Like you just bubble in this dot and it's been phenomenal. Like I've had it for like four months or something. And the number of times I've been on the fence about whether I want to do something that seemed a little risky or maybe a little inconvenient, but would be fun or interesting. I've turned to that poster and looked at it and been like, you should do it. Like, cause you don't have that much time left. So yeah, I, I definitely relate to that. I think humans have an incredible ability to rewrite their lives so that whatever decisions they made don't bother them so much. You know, you make a bunch of choices and, and then you got a different life and you can always justify how, wow, if I hadn't, if I hadn't suffered for all those years, I never would have discovered, you know, so-and-so. So I, I think there is a, in the human psyche this, what's probably an evolutionary force which pushes us towards thinking that whatever we've done in the past isn't so bad and now we're, we're, going, we're in a good place because we've made good choices. Yeah. And Abdullah, you've mentioned too, that at least in our pre-interviews, you mentioned that your wife is behind you on this decision. She wants you, is that correct? That she actually feels like, listen, if you're passionate about this and this is what you want to do, then this is what you should do. Yeah. She's a hundred percent right behind me. And uh, this is one of the blessings that uh, I'm really thankful for. And the problem again is that the onus of being the breadwinner of the house, yes. that that's yeah. falls squarely on me. Yeah. And even though she, she is right behind me, I still feel the responsibility. I have a young seven-year-old boy yeah. at home. And yeah, uh, yeah so, so all of that does weigh very heavily on me. As much as I want all of the changes and I want all the intellectual pursuits and the problem solving and the social goods and everything, the family is the number one priority at all times. So yeah. I want to just make sure that uh, any changes that I make are gradual and step by step. Mm -hmm. And then once the transition does take place, hopefully soon, and it doesn't affect uh, them as much as because no one really wants to see their family affected in any way negatively yeah. so yeah so that's the driving force behind me so we're getting towards the end here and this has actually been such a great wide-ranging conversation and i'm really excited that like the what started off as a sort of simple question of should i or should i not become an economist has bloomed into something that really is about a larger thing about decision makings and what we do with our lives and how much time we have and what the data 
suggest around that. And I'm wondering if you have any sort of final words for listeners who are on the precipice of a change, who are going, ah, should I, should I? Is there any other final piece of universal um, insight that you've gained from your years of studying decision-making? Yeah, I think the one thing I'm most certain about is that if you're on the precipice and you've been going back and forth and you just can't decide, then you should you should have made the change a long time ago. That I think <laughs> is an easy one. How to make it, right? What what the smartest way to do it is a tougher yeah, question. Yeah. The the strategy, the tactics, but the fact that I'll give you an old person example. For five years, I woke up every morning and I said to myself, God, I should really stop being a professor. I should quit being a professor. And mm. every day I said to myself, yeah. Well, God, if I had, you know, every day I thought, well, mm, Maybe I just wait till tomorrow and I'll decide tomorrow. And that is a paralyzing way to think about the world. Because sure, if I had to decide today, either I'd be a professor forever or I'd quit today, I would have quit. But the option of saying, oh, I'm just going to wait till tomorrow, it seems like that's good for you. But then it gets you caught in this trap. And and I did that, even though I'm supposed to be an expert in decision making, I did that for five years. And finally, I quit. And like the people in my studies, I was so happy when I stopped being an academic. So like that's, uh-huh. that's, that is the one piece of advice. If you're on the fence, if you've gone back and forth, if you've been waffling for a week or a month or a year, it's the time to change now. I just uh, think to the point that I've been thinking about it for over a year now, maybe even two years. So... Uh, I feel I've wasted a lot of time in just being caught up in my own head and uh, I, I believe it's time to get a move on and start with the simple steps and that's um, common sense is the right uh, way always. So yeah, small steps towards a bigger journey. That's what I have taken from this uh, wonderful conversation. I love that. This has been so great. First of all, Abdullah, thank you so much for spending your time with us and letting us into your life and telling us about what's going on with you and letting us at least try to help. And Stephen Levitt, it's been amazing listening to you share all of your insight and all the resources and all the information that you've gained over the years, you know, that help us understand how we make decisions as people. I've really loved this conversation, so I just want to extend a hearty thanks to both of you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And Abdul, you, you, you inspire me. I love to hear the passion in your voice, and and I hope you'll stay in touch and let me know how things are turning out for you. Thank you so much. Thank you to Abdullah for sharing this big decision with us, and thank you to Stephen Levitt for his expert insights on economics and life. We'll link to his books and podcast in the show notes. Are you facing a question that has you sweating with excitement? If so, here's Stephen Levitt's telephone number. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Why don't you send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. We take all problems, big and small, and we might just have you on the show. And if this episode inspired you, please give us a rating and a review on your podcast player and tell at least one other person to check us out because that helps us help more people. The best way to support How To is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. To sign up now, go to slate.com slash howtoplus. Again, that's slate.com slash howtoplus. How To's executive producer is Derek John, Joel Meyer is senior editor, Rosemary Belson, Kevin Bendis, and Jabari Butler produced the show, Merritt Jacob is senior technical director, 
Charles Duhigg created the show. Courtney Martin is my co-host, and I'm Carvo Wallace. Thanks for listening. <laughs>